Just give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this, your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. Lord, even having it passed down to this day where we can hear it read in a language that we understand and Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would give us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, O oh God. Or would you convict us? Would you help us? Would you lead us by your spirit and paths of righteousness? Help us to be more like Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help me your servant, would you keep me from error? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. Oh God, you are my rock and my redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite movies is The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride in this movie, a grandfather is telling his grandson an old, old story. Princess Buttercup is in love with a farm boy named Wesley. However, Buttercup has been tricked into marrying the evil prince, Prince Humperdinck. These are great names. The day before the wedding, Humperdinck has Wesley killed. At this point, if you know, the grandson breaks into the narrative and he insists his that his grandfather has read something wrong. And the grandfather assures him that it's right. The grandson is outraged. And then he demands, but who kills Prince Humperdinck? You see, this boy knew how stories were supposed to work. The good guy wins, right? The good guy wins and the bad guy gets defeated. So he insists that Prince Humperdinck must get his just punishment. But what the boy didn't appreciate yet was that often, even in the best of stories, there first comes a point when everything seems lost. A point when it will take a miracle to turn the plot around. A point when the hopelessness of despair is turned into a hopeful expectation that all will indeed be made right. And that the Westleys and the buttercups of the literary world will certainly be able to live happily ever after. It happens in The Princess Bride. We don't live in the Princess Bride, do we? 
We don't live in the literary world. We live in the real world. A real world filled with unexpected plot twists, unfulfilled story arcs, abrupt endings, happily never afters. Most certainly, lots and lots of despair, maybe even hopeless despair. Like the grandson in the story, we too are prone to bust into, to break into the narrative. And we raise our fists and we cry out, when will the story end the way it's supposed to end? What about my story? Why am I suffering? Where is my prince? Where is the child I have been praying for? Why can't I do what they do? If only. If only God would do this or do that or give me this, or take away that. If only God would write my story the way I believe it's supposed to be written, then I, I would live happily ever after. If only. If only. Let me ask you this this morning. What is your if only? What is your if only? If only, two, two words, right? Two words that all of us say. Two words that can be the most dangerous words in our language. Two short words that go a long way to reveal the state of our heart. Two words that can reveal just how discontent we are, discontent with our current circumstances, two words that can really show just how unsatisfied we are with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ and the story that he's writing for us. This morning, we're continuing in this topical series on Christian contentment, and we're doing so by turning to this familiar passage before us. And we're going to consider how we can find satisfaction in God no matter what path he has called us to walk. Some paths are steady and straight, while others are tumultuous and twisted. Some have more but God's than if-onlys. But what makes them all bearable? In fact, if I could, I'll call them blessed. What makes them blessed? No matter what path it is, is the comfort we can find in knowing that we do not walk them alone. We do not walk them alone. Rather, we walk them with Jesus right by our side. And at times, if you're like me, with Jesus carrying you along each and every step of the way. So as we look at this and embrace this truth together this morning, apply it to our lives, I want us to do so in a little bit different way this morning. I want us to consider three cliches, 
Three cliches that have become part of the Christian vernacular. Three common sayings that we hear and perhaps even speak ourselves. Three phrases that need to be corrected, perhaps even rejected. Three mottos that do nothing to nurture our satisfaction in God, but more often than not, they rather serve to hinder it. So, here's your first cliche. If you're taking notes, this is point one. And I know it's one that you have heard. You ready? God will not give me more than I can handle. God will not give me more than I can handle. Sounds biblical, right? That sounds good. Of course, sort of sounds like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You don't have to turn there. Perhaps you know that verse, but that verse is talking about God not letting us be tempted, not letting us be tempted beyond our ability to escape and to endure that temptation. That's, that's where that comes from. It comes from this verse. It's about temptation. It's about God giving us a way beyond it, to escape it, to endure it. So that begs the question, does God give us more than we can handle? Has God given you more than you can handle ever? If we're talking about hardships, if we're talking about difficult circumstances, the answer is yes. God does indeed give us more than we can handle on our own. Just ask Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing this very letter to the church in Philippi from where? From prison. Prison in Rome. He's in chains. In fact, if you you read the book of Acts, you cannot read it, nor his autobiographical accounts in his epistles, particularly 2 Corinthians You can't read that without affirming that what Jesus told Ananias, and if you don't know who Ananias is, he's the man who was able to pray with Paul after Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. Jesus told Ananias, I must show Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That was his call. Bring the gospel to the Gentiles while suffering for the sake of Jesus. And suffer, Paul did. Mocked, beaten, stoned and left for dead, imprisoned, abandoned, abandoned by even some of his closest friends. Paul most assuredly found himself many times on the receiving end of circumstances that were, quote-unquote, more than he could handle. He calls these circumstances, in verse 11, he calls them need. If you look in verse 12, he calls them brought low, hunger, and again, need. If you look down at verse 14, he calls it trouble, trouble. In all of this, do you think that Paul thought God was being unfaithful to him? Did Paul think that God's favor had somehow departed from him? That God had veered away from blessing and begun to write the wrong story? 
the wrong narrative of suffering and sorrow. I'm sure like all of us, it hurt and he questioned. But look at the end of verse 11. We know he believes in God's faithfulness because look how he ends verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation, Paul learned to be content. As I've said throughout this series, this is week four, contentment is directly related to satisfaction, both semantically and practically. You simply cannot be content unless you are satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. And this means that we cannot be content unless we are satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus Christ in whatever situation we find ourselves. In any circumstance that we face, this doesn't negate the reality of hard circumstances or even necessarily lessen the crippling blow of our suffering and our struggling and our sorrows and our shattered dreams. But think of it like an alarm that rouses us out of our slumber with its deafening bell. Or maybe think of it as a a blinding light that breaks through the darkest hour. If we truly believe, if we know that God does indeed give us more than we can handle, you know what we can do? We can sing, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And it does so. It allows us to, because we know that while he may have directed our steps, that he may have brought us to such a place, a place that's hard, his promises are true. They're true. He will not leave us nor forsake us. You believe that? He will walk with us. Do you believe that? He will not let a hair fall from out of our head without his ordering it to do so. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will work everything out for our good and for his glory? Do you believe that? Do you believe that even if we must die, he will not fail to bring us safely to the other side, to be with him forever in heaven? You see, part of our problem, and I have to call it my problem, is I'm always looking for satisfaction in my circumstances. I'm always looking to be satisfied in what's happening rather than seeking to be satisfied in the God of my circumstances. And until we can be satisfied in the God of our circumstances, we cannot and we may never know contentment. Because to be content begins and ends with being content in God and with God, no matter the circumstance. So how do we do that? Paul mentioned a secret. What is the secret to being content in and with God, no matter the circumstance that we're facing? Well, this brings us to our second Christian cliche this morning. Let go and let God. 
Let go and let God. That sounds good, right? Sounds good in the right context. I printed an article from my favorite satirical Christian website, the Babylon Bee. The headline reads as thus. So I got to use my bifocals here. Mountain climber recovering after decision to let go and let God. I'll read the article. It's short, but it's funny. It's helpful. Seasoned mountain climber Randall Jespers tumbled hundreds of feet down the El Capitan rock formation in Yosemite National Park Sunday after reportedly deciding to let go and let God. I don't know, said Jespers of Sacramento. I was at a really tough spot on the cap a couple hundred feet up, and I wasn't really sure how to tackle it. Then I remembered what Pastor Thomas said last week about difficult situations, telling us how we should just let go and let God. So releasing his safety line and relinquishing his grip on the handholds, he immediately dropped like a stone down the steep precipice, bouncing an estimated half dozen times before coming to rest. A nearby climbing party alerted a medical rescue team who airlifted him to John C. Fremont Hospital to be treated for numerous cracked vertebrae, a pair of broken femurs, and various closed head injuries, among others. The doctor says I'll be in traction for a while, Jespers told reporters from his hospital bed, but I'm sure I can speed up the process a bit because, hey, God helps those who help themselves. The story, it's satire, it's humorous. It does expose the fallacy behind a cliche like let go and let God. It is good for us to let go, right? It's good for us to let go of our sense of control. It's good for us to let go of our sense of self-righteousness. But nowhere in scripture are we advised or directed to let go and just embrace a cold stoicism or a fatal determinism. We're never asked to do that, to completely absolve ourselves of any responsibility to actively abide in Christ or to work to put our sins to death by walking in the spirit or to strive to live for God by walking in the good works with which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Simply thinking that possessing an unemotional zombie-like attitude towards our active faith is just as much a fallacy as the woman who recently made the real news. And yes, this is real news. She was overwhelmed by all that she was enduring. She was just searching for some morsel of God's faithfulness. So what did she do? She got in her car. She started speeding I think I read it was 90 miles an hour. And then she let go and let God. In her own words, this is what she said, I let Jesus take the wheel. And do you know what happened? She crashed. She crashed hard. Thankfully, she wasn't severely injured and did not injure anyone else. But she crashed. You know, in our passage, we see the exact opposite of this. We see the opposite of letting go and letting God. The same Paul who says that he's learned to be content in any and every circumstance is the same Paul who back in chapter three speaks of not settling 
with the loss of all things, suffering the loss of all things. Instead, what does he speak of? If you know these verses, you'll know this, or you can look back yourself. He presses on. He strains forward in this life so that he may what? Gain Jesus Christ. Why? Because Paul knew that Jesus was all. Jesus was everything. He knew it was better to be satisfied with Jesus than it was to be satisfied with the circumstances that Jesus had given to him. More than that, if you notice in our text, he goes out of his way to express thankfulness for Jesus' provision in his hard circumstances. Here in verse 10, look, he's commenting on the concern the Philippians had for him. Sending a gift to him was an incredibly difficult task. It's about as far away as New York City is from Chicago. And getting that there without any type of modern transportation and all kinds of difficulties, that's how hard it was to get a gift to Paul. And it wasn't lost on him that this was a good gift. So they sent, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus anyway. And Paul's thankful for that. But I want you to notice that he goes out of his way to make sure that they would know his contentment is not rooted in the gift. He's not content because he has the gift. He wants them to know that he's content. His satisfaction is rooted in the one, the divine one, who gives every good and perfect gift. Because Paul was seeking satisfaction in the God of his circumstances rather than the circumstances themselves. He could both rest in God's goodness and he could keep fighting. Keep fighting for what was true and what was honorable and what was just and what was pure and what was lovely and what was commendable and what was excellent. Verses that precede our verses. In his case, Paul was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to suffer for the sake of Jesus. No matter what he faced, he was passionately pursuing Jesus, the one who saved him, the one who called him, the one who showed him how to love. So I want you to think for a moment about your circumstances, your if-onlys, the things that you long for, Perhaps it's a spouse. Perhaps it's a child. Perhaps it's healing. Perhaps it's restoration of a broken relationship, whatever it might be. I want you to know that you can be both satisfied with God in the midst of the hurt that you feel. And at the same time, you can keep pressing on. You can actually keep seeking these things that you desire, but only, listen, but only, only if you embrace the God of the answer to those prayers more than the answers themselves. For only then will you be able to be content. Content, as Paul says he is here, content in plenty and hunger, abundance and need, content in any and every circumstance. That's the secret of contentment. So I guess instead of saying let go and let God, we should say, as J.I. Packer has suggested over and over again, 
We should say, trust God and get going. Trust God and get believing. Trust God and get serving. Trust God and love. Or maybe, maybe it would be better to say it as Paul says it in verse 13. And this is our third and our final cliche for this morning. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, please note, I am aware this is biblical. It's actually right here. It's in the passage before us, verse 13. It's straight out of the Bible. But unfortunately, it's been misapplied. It gets misapplied all the time, and it has become a cliche. In fact, if you were to pull your unbelieving friends, they would know this well. But let's consider the context of this verse. The context is obviously Paul's explanation of his contentment, his satisfaction in God in the midst of his difficult circumstances. This beautiful, wonderful text is God's remedy. It's God's remedy for every Christian like you and like me who struggle to make sense of the story that we want God to write and the story he's actually writing. It's God's good news for every one of us who lament to God with our if-onlys while desperately asking and seeking and knocking and hoping for him to somehow miraculously intervene with one of those blessed but gods. Think about that. I was without this, but God provided it for me. I, I needed this and God, but God gave it to me. Don't we love those moments? Verse 13 is God's answer to the question, how can I both trust him in the sunshine and in the storm? How can I run just as hard after him when the conditions are favorable as when we're exhausted and soaking wet? How can I know both being brought low and abounding, yet still be content whether I'm facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How? How is it possible? Paul's answer, God's answer, through Christ. To him is Christ. Through Christ who gives you strength. But Pastor Dan, it says all things. My Bible says all things. Did you see that, Pastor Dan? It says all things. Doesn't that mean that my team can claim a victory if we play in Christ's strength? Doesn't that mean I can reach all my goals and fulfill all my dreams if I do it in Christ's strength? Doesn't that mean I'll get that promotion? I'm gonna get into that college. I'm gonna marry that person. I'm gonna be delivered from my sickness if I just do it in Christ's strength? Well, that's not what this verse means at all. It's not. It means that you can suffer victory or, in, excuse me, you can suffer loss or enjoy victory. You can experience success or failure, have fulfilled or unfulfilled dreams. You can have prosperity or adversity. You can do all those things. You can embrace all of them. You can endure all of them, all circumstances through Christ who gives you strength. That's what it means. 
Listen, Jesus is not a key that unlocks some treasure chest that you have formed and fashioned for your own life. Jesus is not that key. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the treasure. I began this morning by reminding us that we live in a real world. We don't live in a literary world. We live in the real world. And if your life is like mine, and if you happen to see what's going on and people all around you, you know there's unexpected plot twists. There's unfulfilled story arcs. There's abrupt endings. There's happily never afters and lots and lots and lots of despair. Some of it even hopeless despair. It is, after all, reality, unfortunate reality of living in a broken and fallen world. A world that's affected at every level by the presence and the persistence of sin. Many of you here this morning are certainly, and I know this, you are in the midst of circumstances that are more than you can handle. And I don't want to be just another person who simply assuages your experience with half-hearted platitudes and cliches, sayings and mottos. Instead, I want to do what we all need to do for one another. Yes, we need to comfort. We need to come alongside and rejoice with those who rejoice and suffer with those who suffer. And yes, I recognize that sometimes the best thing we can do is zip it and just be present. Still learning that. But you know what we have to do? Is we have to point people to Jesus. We have to point people to the true treasure, which is what I'm doing this morning. I want to point you to the one who set you free from sin and death, the one who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I want you to embrace all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. I want you to be satisfied knowing that all of him belongs to you and that all of you belongs to him. I want you to keep asking. I want you to keep seeking. I want you to keep knocking. I want you to keep hoping. I want you to cry out to God to grant you the desires of your heart if it be his will to do so. I want you to be content. I want you to be, I want to be content. Don't look for your contentment in your circumstances. They will ultimately disappoint. The only way to be content in your story, content in all that God has for you and all that he's doing in your life is to be completely satisfied in him being content in all that he is for you in Jesus Christ. And eventually, hopefully for you, it has been for me this week as I thought about this. It's a renewing. It's a renewing of my mind and of my heart and saying, okay, Jesus, you have called me to take up my cross and follow you. And that means that I'm gonna suffer 
That means that my circumstances are going to be difficult. But I believe you. I believe your promises. And I know that as I carry this cross, you are going to carry me. Amen and amen. Thanks be to God for his word.